Thank you very much for the warm introduction, Bernadette, and indeed for inviting me to come and speak here today. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity uh, to speak in conjunction with the exhibition that's currently on display in the library um, on the intellectual culture of Ireland between 1910 and 1920. And I'd urge you all, if you haven't already, to take a look at the document on display after the talk. Um, it's always a pleasure to come to the wonderful library of the Royal Irish Academy and I'd like to thank as well the staff uh, for all their help while I did my research here and to all of you for coming today. Um, so Professor Eleanor Knott was a prolific contributor to the field of Celtic studies in the 20th century. She devoted much of her life to scholarship and had a very successful career producing scholarly work in the field of both early and modern Irish. She worked on the Dictionary of the Irish Language of, at the Royal Irish Academy for more than 50 years, was joint editor of the School of Irish Learning Philological Journal, ERU. She was one of the first female lecturers at Trinity College before having the Chair of Early Irish created for her in 1939. She served on the board of the School of Celtic Languages at the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies although she turned down a professorship here out of her loyalty to the Royal Irish Academy and Trinity College. In 1949, she was one of the first four women elected as a member here at the Royal Irish Academy. Although she retired from her position in Trinity in 1955, she continued with her scholarly work for some years, so it seems rather apt to be talking about such a trailblazer in her field uh, considering it was International Women's Day yesterday. As a scholar, Eleanor was renowned for her exacting and scientific methods employed in her editorial approaches, preferring quality over quantity, as well as for her modest translations. She studied Old Irish at the School of Irish Learning in Dublin and became well versed in both uh, in the language and literature of early I and modern Irish with her published work touching upon all those areas. Her speciality, however, lay mainly in the language and poetry of the early modern Irish period, of which she became the leading authority during her lifetime. She's probably most well known for her publication of the uh, Bardic Poems of Tig Del O'Higgins, published with the Irish Tech Society, as well as the textbook An Introduction to Irish Syllabic Verse, and the edition of the early Irish saga, Tuggle Britna Dalderga. Moreover, she was also a joint editor of about of approximately eight volumes of Eru and co-edited the E and F fascicles of the dictionary, as well as assisted with the contributions to the dictionary. However, she is well less known or less well known, I suppose, for her work with Antahar Pader O'Leara, for whom she compiled the vocabulary Folklore Deshert, and edited, edited Lugged Macon, amongst others. She wrote many other shorter texts and studies, which were of no less importance, as well as reviews and obituaries. Noteworthy, for instance, is her useful index to the proper names in Salter Naran, published in Nehru, as well as co-editing Osborne Bergen's edition of Irish Grammatical Tract 5, which was printed as a supplement in Nehru after his death. So today I would like to examine Eleanor Knott's archives with a view to tracing her intellectual development within academia 
paying particular attention to her formative years as an academic, beginning shortly before 1910 to the mid-1920s, in order to gain a deeper understanding of her psychology and how it was that she emerged as a leading scholar and contributor in the field of Celtic studies, which was predominantly the patriarchal academic landscape during her time. The archival material is rich with private correspondence from distinguished figures in the field of Celtic studies, and therefore allows us to look past the cold chronological facts of Eleanor's life and academic career, gaining a sense of the personal engagement Eleanor had with her contemporaries. Furthermore, we also see how intellectual ideas grew out of communication between these scholars, how it allowed them to extend their thinking in a collaborative mode, and what their research interests were. Now, I must confess at the outset, however, to not being the first person who has talked or written about the life and academic career of Eleanor Nott. Dr. Owen McCarthy from the Department of Irish and Celtic Languages, Trinity College Dublin, is the authority on Eleanor, having extensively researched her life and academic career and publishing two fascinating articles, which really make for great reading. The first appears in Lefty Colin Killa in 2005, and the second in the subsidiary series to the Irish Tech Society, published in 2010. These article, in these articles, Dr. Uh, McCorha gives a detailed biography of Eleanor and her academic work, drawing from various sources such as personal interviews, archival material, her articles and obituaries on her. In his article published in 2010, Dr. McCorha uh, examines Eleanor's upbringing, whether she joined any Irish movements in her early years, and what resources did she have to hand when editing the poems of Ty, Bell, O'Higgins. So I owe much to Owen and to these articles, and I will be referring to his research throughout the lecture. There are two separate archives of Eleanor Nuss' papers, an extensive collection housed here in the Royal Irish Academy Library, and a smaller but no less interesting collection uh, down the road in Trinity College, Dublin. These collections abound with notebooks, draft documents, neatly written slips, handwritten notes, receipts, printed material, and so on. But mostly private correspondence from family, friends, and prominent scholars in the field of Celtic studies. The collections also contain drafted replies by Eleanor Nott, two letters she received, which are particularly intriguing as it is in these that her true uncensored voice is heard. Furthermore, her many notes and drafts cast light on her scholarly approaches, reflecting the methodological manner in which she went about her research. The longest lines of correspondence are seen in the form of incoming letters from the likes of Professor Osborne Bergen, R.I. Best, T.F. O'Rahele, and Tahir Pader O'Leary, as well as Elmer Hull, Margaret O'Reilly, and Norma Borthwick. These documents deal with a wide array of subjects, spanning from editorial issues uh, arising from the co uh, jo um, joint editing of ERU, to etymological and lexicographical discussions, the publication of the bardic poems of Tygdale O'Higgins, to matters concerning the Society for the Simplification of Irish Spelling, 
with which Elmer was involved, and to the more mundane, such as postcards from holidays to notes from her doctor. Unfortunately, there are gaps in the archives, and Goncourt has observed uh, astutely that a censor may have removed material from the collection before it was deposited with the libraries. The censor's work is perhaps evident in the correspondence from Margaret O'Reilly to Eleanor Nash, where an unspecified problem saw Eleanor resign from her position of registrar at the Dublin College of Modern Irish in 1913. I'm not sure what the cause of her resignation was, as, and there is nothing in the collections which might shed any more light on the turn of events leading to her resignation, although it may have been resolved because she does appear again as registrar in 1914 and 1915. The material in these archives are important, not just for understanding more about Elmer, but it also gives us an insight into the thoughts of her contemporaries and what they want to work on. Amongst the material in the Royal Irish Academy uh, collection are six notebooks belonging to Edward Gwynne. And in these we find his transcriptions from manuscripts, uh, his research on the contents of uh, Salter uh, Cashel, or the contents of the now lost Salter Cashel, or the Salter of Cashel, various notes, and a separate sheet of a paper written in Gwyn's hand, which is one of my favourites because it reads like a modern to-do list, uh, with the title of Suggestions of Work to be Done, such as publishing collections of gnomic texts and monastic rules. His listing of the glossaries is noteworthy, for instance, because on one page he lists uh, the manuscript readings, and on the facing page he notes uh, cross-references of the text which the glosses uh, pertain to. And in one of the notebooks, we find a handwritten catalogue by Gwynne of some of the manuscripts held in Moore Abbey, Monastery Evan, uh, which formerly belonged to the 18th century book collector, Dr. John Fergus. So the wealth of material contained in these collections uh, definitely provide for plenty of scope for future research. But returning back to Elmer. Elder Knott was born in 1886 to the prominent physician John Freeman Knott and Philippa Anne Falcone. Eleanor lived all her life in Dublin, having been born um, in 34 York Street, not far from here, Stephen Green, before moving to Sally Mount Terrace in Ranelagh in 1910. Her father, John Freeman Knott, hailed from County Roscommon and was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And in his early 20s, he was a farmer. But his heart didn't lie in farming or tending animals, as is clear from his interests in learning languages such as Greek and Latin and reading the life of Faust. In 1874, he left his wife and farm behind to go to the Royal Irish College, the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin. His wife Elizabeth died some five years later in Roscommon, but John remarried in 1881 to Philippa Anne. So although John was a significant uh, scholar, writing some 2,000 articles in his lifetime, he had a bit of a notorious reputation and was considered as somewhat of an eccentric towards the end of his life. Frank Robbins gives an account of, uh, of the day the rebels entered the Royal College of Surgeons uh, on the day of the Easter Rising. 
So on that day, John Knott went to the Royal, uh, Royal College of Surgeons to go to the library to do his research, but the caretaker was blocking the door, not letting him enter, and uh, John, uh, Robbins managed to wedge his foot in the door and the rebels broke into the college. Uh, but legend has that John went to the library anyway, <laughs> oblivious to the chaos and gunfire surrounding him. Her mother, Elner's mother, Philippa Ann Balcombe, was originally from Yorkshire, and she was the daughter uh, to Lieutenant Colonel James Balcombe. McCorha points out that she took part in amateur theatre in the 1880s and 90s and moved in dramatic social circles. Her sister Florence was suited by Oscar Wilde, but she eventually married Bram Stoker. Mention of Eleanor together with her parents in the newspaper social columns, together with letters from various actors, suggests that Eleanor was also part of that scene. She knew the likes of the Abbey actress Sarah Allgood and actor Frank J. Fay, one of the two brothers who founded the Abbey Theatre. Frank wrote to Eleanor on several occasions when he was touring in England, and in one he writes that he had just starred in the London screening of the Playboy of the Western World which was well received, but he notes, the disturbance on Friday night at the Playboy was good. Uh, sorry, there was disturbance on Friday night at the Playboy, but nothing compared to what we had here, with here referring to that infamous, uh, the infamous riots at the opening of the Playboy in the Abbey uh, in January 1908. There is a noted absence of any more such letters from the collections uh, after 1908. So Eleanor was somewhat of a reserved person, but under her shyness lay a kind, generous and loyal friend. In her printed work, however, Eleanor was much more assertive and could come across in a harsh manner if necessary, and she was not one afraid to hold her tongue. Such critical tone was not unheard of coming from the alumni of the Bergen School, that is, the School of Irish Learning, from which Eleanor came, all of whom practised careful and scientific modern scholarship akin to the scholarship practised by Celticists in Germany. Such, such harsh criticism was felt by some to be dis discouraging to new scholars and as a result gave these watchdogs of modern scholarship uh, some notoriety. P.J. Connolly addressed Eleanor's harsh tone in response to a review she wrote of John McGarrion's three-volume edition of Dobby O'Brother's poems, noting, without sacrifice to principles or scholarship, the critic can be kind and encouraging. Eleanor's acerbic tone is found in a heavily edited and somewhat censored draft of her review that she sent to McGarrion or to P.J. O'Connell. In it, she attacks McGarrion's translation writing, the method of translation followed might be said to disarm criticism in the sense that one is not always certain whether or not the translator has understood uh, the original. The English versions, moreover, are unpleasant to read, being neither prose nor verse, but is a most distasteful jingle which certainly does not give any idea of the Irish measure. It would be a pity for any mere English reader to imagine that it did. Needless to say, this did not make it into the printed review. 
This was written in 1917, 10 years uh, since Eleanor first entered the School of Irish Learning, having been mentored by Osborne Bergen, and some five years before the appearance of the first volume of the Tide Dow edition. In this review, her academic voice is loud and clear, albeit admittedly harsh in tone, in order to convey her belief in the necessity for presenting an accurate text, uh, for the requirement for using normalised spelling, and for the need of honest translation. Be that as it may, the private correspondence does allow us to glean a tamer side to her personality. Eleanor Knott had a love of literature and drama, often gifting books to her friends, and she even had a penchant for drawing witty caricatures. In a letter written in reply to Knott, in which they have been discussing the scholar Robin Flower, Osborne Bergen uh, notes in her, pic in her letter to him that the picture of him, that is Robin Flower, hopping down the page is delightful. <laughs> Similarly, we find a letter from Norma Borthwick uh, noting that upon leaving Eleanor's office, she says she forgot to take her cartoons of Dar uh, Douglas Hyde and Mr. Gibson with her, and if Eleanor could give them to her uh, the next time they meet. The only formal education we are aware of that Eleanor received was that he, she attended uh, Abercorn Ladies College on Harcourt Street, a school that focused on teaching, music and languages. In a draft letter addressed to Lillian Duncan, and somewhat of her, like nearly the most important letter we have from Eleanor, in which she reflects on her life and interests in the Irish language, Eleanor remembers one teacher in particular addressing her class on the importance of learning their country's history and how one ought to be ashamed if one didn't know it. Eleanor likened this address as giving water to a parched land. It is hardly surprising that Eleanor had a thirst for knowledge and a passion for language, given her father's background, and eventually she did go into the field of Celtic studies. It is thought also that her mother, who was of Cornish descent, encouraged her interest in Irish language and literature. Eleanor herself wrote how easy it was for her to learn Irish and that she doesn't remember a time in her life when she wasn't interested in Irish. So it appears that both her family and perhaps also her teacher at Aberforn Ladies College both influenced and supported her academic endeavours. McCorha, however, has observed that Eleanor didn't ever sit any post-primary exams. She never uh, went to university but uh, she was awarded an honorary doctorate for her academic achievements in 1938. Eleanor Knott was ambitious from early on in her life. From the age of 18, it is evident that she had a passion for writing and research. It appears that she was intent on establishing a career in journalism for herself, writing to editors seeking career advice or asking for the opportunity to work. Charles Shute, uh, assistant editor to the Irish Journal, in response to a letter from Knott, made inquiries for her about journalistic work on literary and dramatic criticism in Ireland, but notes that there is little opportunity because most newspapers have their own staff of reporters with more opportunity to be found in England. He suggested writing criticisms of dramas or books and sending them to random newspapers in the hope of publication. 
Nat was nothing if not persistent in achieving her goal and between the years of 1905 to 1908 undertook writing many articles to the newspapers such as Ireland's Own and the Irish Packet. These newspapers, uh, these contributions reflect the interests she had in Irish literature and the status of the language in Ireland at the time. Although she never joined any Irish movement, such as the Gaelic League, McCorha conceives her as a romantic nationalist with a romantic attachment to the language. Ultimately, however, nothing came of her career in journalism, but it certainly wasn't for a lack of trying. Her preoccupation with writing and research, however, did not cease. She began reading more widely, and this in turn led her to early Irish studies. She read through copies of Revue Celtique in the National Library with the intent of compiling her own L'Empereur, or encyclopedia of sorts, and thus it already shows very early her uh, predilection for compiling lists uh, as well. It was here in the National Library, or just up the road, that she encountered the Irish scholar R.I. Best, who was assistant librarian at the time. Elner herself notes that meeting Best at this point was a turning point in her career. Best, upon seeing her potential, advised her that she should learn to read the Irish literature in the original language and suggested she attend classes at the School of Irish Learning. She took this up wholeheartedly and in 1907 she attended the summer school in the School of Irish Learning with the aid of a small scholarship. Thus she became an alumna of that famous nursery of scholars, as it has been known. She possessed all the virtues required for a scholarly career, that is, unremitting industry, sobriety of judgment, and lucid exposition. The year 1910 saw the publication of her first edited poem, in Aru, and it also saw her commence work on the Tidedale poems. In 1910 also, on the behest of Bergen, Elmer worked with Amtahar Pader O'Leary, compiling a vocabulary to accompany his modern Irish uh, adaptation entitled Eshert. During this time, and for some several years to come, Elner was in close correspondence with Norma Borswick and Margaret O'Reilly, founders of the Irish Book Company, who read through drafts and proofs of her vocabulary, amongst other books. From these correspondences, it is transparent that the women, these women in particular were very supportive of Elner and her work, both financially and emotionally. In 1911, Knott began work as an assistant for the Dictionary of the Irish Language, along with Maud Joint and Mary E. Byrne. That Elner received the job was much to the delight of her friend Norma Borthwick, who was relieved that the right person for the job was employed, commenting, Irish work especially seems, it seemed until lately, to be constantly suffering from incompetent handling. There used to be a great deal of that, but we may hope it stays over. The assistants worked under the supervision of the Norwegian linguist Carl Marstrander until he left Ireland in 1912, having quit his post at the School of Irish Learning. Much controversy surrounded how Marstrander ran the dictionary project and the publication of the first FASCO, or Marstrander D, as it was known, in 1913, saw Marstrander come under severe criticism from Kuno Meyer and Osborne Bergen, um, scrutinising his editorial policy. 
These systems, they all worked part-time, approximately four hours per week. Working under the supervision of Marstrander was probably a demanding task, with him writing Elmer many postcards in a curt manner. These cards were written to her after he left Ireland to take up the professorship in Celtic languages in the University of Oslo in 1912. In these postcards, he gives instructions on how to write out slips, how to arrange them alphabetically, as well as parsing and analysing words on big sheets of paper. Indeed, such sheets are found in uh, the Royal Irish Academy collection, and they demonstrate Elmer's industrious and meticulous approach to her work. Elmer put pressure on herself while working on the E and F fascicles, noting herself in a letter to Fergan that she was working day and night. But this led her to fear that she would make mistakes with the entries, causing her to be haunted by, quote, visions of eagles and owls in Scandinavia, end quote, referring to Marstrander, who was ready to criticise Bergen when errors were to be found in the dictionary. This immense pressure she put on herself, along with her determination and work ethic, led her to frequently being ill. And we often find letters written to her by her friends and colleagues urging her to rest and to recuperate from various illnesses before returning to work on the dictionary. The culmination of her lexicographical work on the dictionary was the publication of the second fascicle on words beginning with E, which she jointly edited with Maud Joint, and that came out in 1932, more than 19 years after Marstrander's D. Fascicle F also appeared in two uh, parts in 1950-1957. That it took so long is probably not surprising considering they were working part-time as well as working on other projects uh, and also because of the exacting standards that Elmer employed. It's worthwhile also noting that the dictionary was created before there were computers, databases and digitised manuscript images at the touch of a button on your desk. Elmer remained involved in the dictionary uh, for many years, and it's no wonder that David Green called her the living embodiment of the dictionary. Her dedication and devotion to scholarship is most evidenced in the length of time it took for her to prepare the Tygdale O'Higgins edition, almost 16 years in total. In 1910, the Irish Tech Society agreed to publish the poems in two volumes, paying £20 per volume. It took 12 years for the first volume to appear in print, and another four years for the second. The delay in publication was for a number of reasons, both personal and other, as she, Elner, herself notes in the preface to the first volume. Elner's father died in 1921, shortly before the publication of the first volume, leaving Elmer and her mother on their own and having to settle her father's financial affairs. Elmer did have a brother, but by this stage he was living in England. Her father, father left behind financial debts, but these were settled, and Elmer went about organising the sale of her father's library. R.I. Best, a close friend of hers at this stage, was a great help to her, and he would often call to her house, in order to help sorting out the library. While sorting through the library, Elmer discovered several letters, some of which were written by Oscar Wilde. Best encouraged her to sell these, noting that the letters were in the that letters in the hand of Wilde were precious, 
more precious than the uh, leaves from Laranahedra or the Book of Leinster. He also suggested selling newspapers from pre-1916 to the Freeman Journal. So this particular episode, I suppose, highlights the financial hardships that Eleanor Knott endured through her life, particularly through the early years of her career. And she was often forced to supplement her income with other work. McCora also points out that in the letter, Eleanor wrote that um, she didn't join any movements because of a lack of money. In another letter, we see Eleanor writing in a somewhat timid manner to R.I. Best, seeking his advice on whether she could ask Miss Green for a loan of £10, which she would pay back when she gets paid for her book in the Irish Tech Society. Between the years of 1910 and 1926, Eleanor Hull wrote some 47 letters to Eleanor Knott in which they communicate about the editorial policies and publication issues of the bardic poems of Tygdale O'Higgins, as well as uh, matters concerning their own research. Eleanor Hull was also a Celticist, and she was the secretary, secretary to the Irish Tech Society, based in London, from 1897 to 1935. Hull acted as a mediator between the Council of the Society and Knott during the process of uh, the edition being published. Hull was in some ways similar to Knott. She never received any formal third level education and was only awarded a doctorate towards the end of her life, but she did attend some summer schools in the School of Irish Learning. However, the two clashed in their belief of what it was that should be included in the edition, with Hull being of the opinion that only a representative selection of poems should be included, while not in contrast, argue vehement, argued vehemently that the edition should be scholarly and of the highest standards. The correspondence from Knott demonstrates that she had a very clear vision of what the edition should contain from the beginning, what format it should take and what size it would be. She specifies that the edition should include, uh, this is in 1910, a short historical introduction, an account of Tig himself, a note on meter, a list of irregular verbs, and indices of names. In 1912, Hull noted through some of Knott's correspondence to her that the edition might possibly consist of more than the two agreed volumes. This was problematic for Hull, stating that the Society had just published MacGurdian's edition of the O'Bruder poems in three volumes, noting that that was too much. In her opinion, if a poet was very, uh, is very voluminous, there are generally poems which is no disadvantage or loss at all to omit. We don't want every scrap that can be got together, good or bad, but we want representative collections of the best poetry. Nothing more transpires over the size of the edition until 1920, when once again Hull writes to Nott stating that it was not advisable to publish the edition in three volumes because it would hold up publication for others and require a three-year subscription. Hull goes so far as to suggest publishing quatrains in two long lines, noting, it is not so pleasant to read, but in such times as these, all possible economies must be adopted, and especially with one small subscription. This suggestion greatly irked not, evidenced by her writing rubbish in her uh, next to this sentence. 
In two further draft responses to Hull, Knott goes on the attack again and retorts, I am disgusted at the thought, crossed out, I dislike the idea of printing the stanzas in double lines. Furthermore, she is aghast at the idea of selecting only some representative poems of Tidale, finding such a thought absurd, as this goes against the scientific and scholarly approach of her edition. Not also asserts that she has no intention of omitting sections of her introduction in the fear that such information might bore those who have no genuine interest in Irish scholarship. It is not for them that she has transcribed, collated and translated these poems. Thus, we see between the uh, clash between the old way I suppose of scholarship as represented by Hull and the new standards of modern scholarship that uh, Nott was trying to uh, implement. The edition, finally, of course, was her magnum opus, and it received high praise for its exacting standards and high-quality research, thus raising the bar for all future editions. Apart from the extensive introduction and comprehensive corpus, Eleanor was the first to address correctly uh, the linguistic dating of the periods of the Irish language, as uh, Professor Liam Brannock has pointed out. A letter from her chief and teacher, Osborne Bergen, must have been enough to make even the modest Elmer blush when he wrote that while Tygdale was fortunate to have received claim and honour for his poetry that was not even afforded Eric Macrisha or Tyg MacDyra. Little did he know that hundreds of years after his death, his life and work would once again claim fame. Bergen continues, Your notes are a mine of information, and I expect to turn constantly to the glossarial index in search of parallels and solutions, or at least acknowledgments of pro problems which a conscientious editor cannot afford to shirk. But the feeling of good work accomplished must be your best reward, and I cannot help envying you the relief and the clear conscience with which you can now lay down these two volumes and take up what next? Indeed, what next? Upon the publication of the edition of the Tygdale O'Higgins Poems, and as well as by that stage having established herself as a scholar of the highest standards, the road was open for a new project, and it was not too long before the likes of T.F. O'Rahele and Osborne Bergen were making suggestions to her on what to work next. The latter enthusiastically wrote to her, uh, that is, T.F. O'Rahele, suggesting that Elner was the perfect person to write a book or a verse reader for university students for whom bardic poems were largely inaccessible to them at that time. Um, at that time, I suppose, poems were locked away in various journals um, or in expensive volumes like the uh, uh, Irish Tech Society series. So it's through this correspondence between Elner and Arachne that we see the format of the book taking shape. O'Rathley was keen that the book should have an introduction with a concise description of the meters and more quatrains which are straightforward enough to lure the student into thinking that the material is not difficult. <laughs> um, the resulting book was, of course, an introduction to Irish syllabic verse of the period 1200 to 1600, and it remains the standard text used in the universities today, although it was referred to uh, as an implement of torture as well. Um, in 1928, Elner was approached by Edward Gwynne, the provost of uh, Trinity College, 
to teach them four hours per week. She accepted, but not before seeking the permission of her chief, Professor Bergen, for fear that it would interfere with her work on the dictionary. There are contradictory accounts of what she was like as a lecturer, um, with some describing her teaching methods as she would be in the room talking to herself nearly. But be that as it may, Elder was excited when she encountered students who demonstrated potential and a keenness to learn. In one instance, she remarks excitedly that one of her students has bought a copy of Lerinahedra and he shows great promise. I wonder who that was. She was very innovative in her pedagogical uh, approaches, coming up with ideas for projects uh, where students could undertake editing material, where each student would take a turn in transcribing, collating, indexing, and hunting for references. So while she was working in Trinity College, she did continue to collaborate with her colleagues in order to produce material for publication, as well as editing ERU, as well as compiling more lexicographical entries for the dictionary. Correspondence from J.G. O'Keefe to Elner traces the beginnings of his endeavours to publish the Irish text series. The letters also show that the two were, for many years, planning on editing and publishing the poems attributed to Colin Killa. But this never did come to fruition, possibly due to Elner's great workload. Elner continued to, to contribute many of her own works, including editions of texts such as The Rule of St. Clair and Tuggle Ridna Dodd Erga. It is somewhat poignant that her last article submitted to Eru in 1962 was on the Irish word folklore or dictionary, together with an obituary she wrote of her close friend, R.I. Best. Throughout her life, Elner showed great self-determination in doing what she had a passion for, that is, researching Irish language and literature. She carried out her research modestly, not just for herself, but for others, often without financial remuneration. The letters in, uh, her letters in particular show that although she was certainly a very strong-minded and independent thinking person, she was also a loyal friend uh, as well as being loyal to the institution she worked for. Although I cannot do justice to all of Elmer's achievements in the short time I had ta to talk to you today, I hope I have given you a sense of the wealth of the archival material contained in the Royal Irish Academy Library and in Trinity College, and how we are able to get a better sense of who Elmer was. Thank you very much.